following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. So for anybody who doesn't know me, my day job is as a seventh grade English teacher. Um, And the favorite thing that I get to teach each year is usually a short unit on stories. Um, And we talk about narrative arc, kids write stories, we read some stories. But the favorite thing I get to do is I get to tell them some of my stories. And I usually start with some things that they kind of enjoy that follow a typical format of story in terms of how they understand it. I share about a time that I, one of two times in my life that I flipped a car um, and how everything turned out okay and I was fine. I share a story of my dad getting run over by a tractor, true story, but that he was okay and that everything was fine. Um, And then I tell them an awful story that I love to tell them um, about when I was 12, and I'll save you the full full-blown story and give you the short version, um, that we had a family farm and there was a calf that was sick and I attempted to tube feed this calf because it wouldn't drink and nobody else was around to help me and I tried to do it on my own. And the way that story ends is that I mistakenly put it down the wrong tube and suffocated the calf and it died in my arms. Sorry. (laughs) At the end of this story, my children look at me like I'm an absolute maniac They can't believe that I told them this story, and they reject it as a possible resolution. When we're filling out our narrative arc maps, they say, where's the resolution to this story? And I was like, well, how did the problem get solved? I'm like, you killed it. I was like, well, that's your resolution. So they have a really hard time with this, and then we get to this idea that not every story turns out neatly. And at 12 and 13, they're actually getting to a point in life where that does make some sense to them. And they realize that, no, not every story is going to turn out neatly and nicely. Um, At the end of this, when they write their stories, this actually opens up and I get, to be clear, I'm making myself sound like a really good teacher when I say, like, the good stories I'm going to get. I get some awful stories, too. But I get some really good, really good stories. Like, this year, I got a story from a student about her dad who had died a year prior to cancer. And it was just beautiful. It was well thought out. Um, It was amazing how she dealt with it and didn't try to make any of it nice. There was another story about a girl who had had surgery at age seven for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and she um, didn't focus on the whole, like, I got sick and then I was better, but she focused on the confusion of her parents not fully explaining it to her and her going to school and the fact that basically today nobody knows about it. It's like this secret thing that she holds. So I got these really good stories once the students started to see that not every story has to go a certain way and work out in a happy ending and that type of thing. And I think um, that this... When I was preparing for this, it reminded me of a TED Talk that I heard by, and I'm going to attempt to say her name correctly, but it's Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and she uh, did a TED Talk called um, The Danger of a Single Story. Um, And I believe that we have that video, hopefully, and we're going to watch just a few minutes while she explains this. living domestic help who would often come from nearby rural villages. So the year I turned eight, we got a new houseboy. His name was Fide. The only thing my mother told us about him was that his family was very poor. My mother sent yams and rice and our old clothes to his family. And when I didn't finish my dinner, my mother would say, finish your food. Don't you know people like Fide's family have nothing? So I felt enormous pity for Fide's family. Then one Saturday, we went to his village to visit. 
And his mother showed us a beautifully patterned basket made of dyed raffia that his brother had made. I was startled. It had not occurred to me that anybody in his family could actually make something. All I had heard about them was how poor they were, so that it had become impossible for me to see them as anything else but poor. Their poverty was my single story of them. Years later, I thought about this when I left Nigeria to go to university in the United States. I was 19. My American roommate was shocked by me. She asked where I had learned to speak English so well and was confused when I said that Nigeria happened to have English as its official language. She asked if she could listen to what she called my tribal music and was consequently very disappointed when I produced my tape of Mariah Carey. (laughs) She assumed that I did not know how to use a stove. What struck me was this. She had felt sorry for me even before she saw me. Her default position toward me as an African was a kind of patronizing, well-meaning pity. My roommate had a single story of Africa, a single story of catastrophe. In this single story, there was no possibility of Africans being similar to her in any way, no possibility of feelings more complex than pity, no possibility of a connection as human equals. I must say that before I went to the U.S., I didn't consciously identify as African. But in the U.S., whenever Africa came up, people turned to me, never mind that I knew nothing about places like Namibia. But I did come to embrace this new identity, and in many ways, I think of myself now as African, although I still get quite irritable when Africa is referred to as a country, the most recent example being my otherwise wonderful flight from Lagos two days ago in which um, there was an announcement on the Virgin flight about their charity walk in India, Africa, and other countries. So after I had spent some years in the U.S. as an African, I began to understand my roommate's response to me. If I had not grown up in Nigeria, and if all I knew about Africa were from popular images, I too would think that Africa was a place of beautiful landscapes, beautiful animals, and incomprehensible people fighting senseless wars, dying of poverty and AIDS, unable to speak for themselves, and waiting to be saved by a kind white foreigner. I would see Africans in the same way that I, as a child, had seen Fide's family. This single story of Africa ultimately comes, I think, from Western... Okay, so um, that is a sermon all in itself that you could happily go watch the whole thing. So she's talking about these stereotypes where we create a single story of a group of people. That's not exactly what I'm going to talk about, but I want to talk about the idea of a single story of Christianity or of following God or following Jesus and what that looks like. And I don't know how many of you would identify with that, but I kind of had in my head most of the time growing up a picture of what a person who followed Jesus looked like, acted like, and it was a single story. And for me, that story was approximately the Apostle Paul. And that's kind of what I thought a Christian was supposed to look like, act like, and be like. Um, He had a, a dramatic conversion from being a sinner to becoming a saint. He knew his doctrine and had it nailed down. He had an answer for everything. He was confrontational. He took on people who disagreed with him. He spread the gospel message far and wide and told everybody he could about Jesus. It's a beautiful and wonderful story. And I didn't relate to it at all. Or I tried to, because it seemed like this was what a Christian should look like or should be like, but that didn't really fit me. 
I'm an introvert. I hide when there's groups of people. Paul went out in front of them and talked to them and confronted them and mingled with crowds to tell them about Jesus. Um, I do not like intruding on other people's lives. Evangelism to me always seemed like this, oh, I'm really supposed to do it, but my goodness, I cannot conceive of evangelizing to people, to strangers, because it seemed so far outside of who I was. I didn't really fit in with a single story. You might have a different picture in your head of what the single story of Christianity looks like, but I think for a lot of us, we might not match up with what that thing is. And I think that when that happens, there's a problem, and that we react to it two ways. We either reject the whole faith and say that faith is nonsense, or I'd be willing to bet, because we're sitting in a church this morning, that a lot of us maybe haven't completely done that. But maybe we reject ourselves in some way and say, like, the faith is good, but my story is not good, or is not what it's supposed to be, or I don't match up. So what I'd like to do this morning is actually just take a look at some stories in the Bible and maybe try to see them from a different way and talk about these different variants of stories. Because when we look at the scripture, when we look at the Bible, it's a library of 66 books of all of these different perspectives and stories and views on things. So this morning, we are going to start with the story of King Saul, Um, and maybe not the whole story of King Saul, but just some parts of it. When Saul was anointed king by Samuel, if we are reading the text, he didn't really want it. He was, after he was anointed as king by Samuel, He went and prophesied and it says God changed his heart and then he went home and his uncle asked him, what did Samuel tell you? And he said that the donkeys are found. And he didn't mention anything about like the prophesying or about becoming, that he's anointed to be king. And then when um, his uh, his day to to be declared king came and they like casted lots, when he knew it was his family's turn, they found that it was Saul, that he was the one meant to be king. And he was hiding in the supplies so that nobody could find him. He didn't want this thing. And then he became king, and they fought wars, and he made mistakes, and he would repent. And he made a mistake once of he was supposed to utterly destroy a group of people, which we're just going to pass over, which we should not pass over. We're just going to pass over that right now. That he was supposed to utterly destroy this other nation. But he didn't, and they took plunder. And because of that, God rejected him as king. Saul repented, but it didn't work out. He was still rejected as king. And that's where we get to a part of the story that a lot of us hear, which is where Saul, um, it says that a harmful spirit from God comes upon him, and he hires David to come in and play the harp for him. And I would like to picture Saul in that room for a second. Rejected by God, he repented. He said, I won't do it again. He said he was sorry, and it didn't matter, and he was still rejected. And we could probably come up with all kinds of modern medical diagnoses for Paul, but we'll just go with the understanding that he had, which was to him it felt like a harmful spirit from the Lord was on him. And we can picture Paul in that room, maybe laying back on a bed, eyes closed, wrestling with the thoughts in his head, with the feelings of shame and rejection. Well, David plays a harp, and it's the only thing that soothes him, the only thing that makes him feel better. And we can say that that moment right there is a story that is part of sometimes what it's like to live with God. Saul's story doesn't really turn out well if you follow it through to the end. And afterwards, this boy who was playing for him to make him feel better becomes more famous than him and becomes this great king who made just as many mistakes as him but is regarded as this great king who everybody loved. And that's a hard story. The narrator throughout this, you might expect 
would have rejected Saul and said he was no good. But the narrator shows sympathy for Saul throughout this story. Kind of like the text is telling us, yeah, sometimes life with God looks a little bit like Saul's story. And it's messy, and it doesn't fit in, and you wrestle with things you don't want to wrestle with, and that's life with God. Speaking of Saul's mistakes, he made another mistake um, that leads into our next story. He was not supposed to mess with the Gibeonites because they had a covenant with Israel, but he messed with the Gibeonites. So then, when David became king, there was a famine in the land for three years. And David saw after God and he said, what's the problem? And God said, well, the famine's because um, Saul messed with the Gibeonites and he wasn't supposed to. So David said, okay, I'm going to make it right. And he went to Gibeon and he asked them, what should we do? And they said, give us some of Saul's sons. So David did. He sent seven of Saul's sons to Gibeon, and their lives were sacrificed to get rid of this famine. That's my like, best PG version of everything that happened in that um, situation. So this brings us to Rizpah, which is the next story I want to tell. Rizpah was one of Saul's concubines. It's two of her sons who are sent to Gibeon and sacrificed for the good of the nation. And Rizpah, after this happens, looks at this injustice, and she does not just hang her head and goes away, but she sets out sackcloth on the rock in front of where their bodies are and remained. And she spends all day and all night there, keeping the birds away at day and the beasts away at night and protecting those bodies, it says, from the beginning of harvest until the first rain fell. Google tells me that's five months. That she sat there. And she um, protested in an act of love for her children to protect them. And this was eventually, after five months, noticed by King David, who finally gathered the bones and gave them a proper burial. She put herself close to death and discomfort. She recognized an injustice and refused to let it go. She didn't just go along with what the nation, with what the church, because if both things were tied together, were telling her, when she saw injustice, she, looked, she saw it as wrong, she called it out as wrong, and she committed her act of protest against it. Sometimes life with God is like Rizpah, where we're forced into a situation near death and discomfort, and it's our job to stand against what's wrong and what's injustice. A third story. This one, slightly more cheerful. Um, In the book of Acts, one of the early converts to Christianity is an Ethiopian eunuch. Um, And in that story, we get the story of this eunuch who is traveling to Jerusalem to worship. Now, there are multiple interpretations of his status um, uh, in terms of like his fitting in the society of Israel. Because of being a eunuch, there's a verse in Deuteronomy that says he cannot be part of the assembly of God. Some people interpret that as meaning like he couldn't even worship. A lot of people think, and this is what I think, but it doesn't really matter because I'm not a theologian at all. A lot of people think that um, it means that he couldn't be a citizen in Israel. Either way, he does not have full rights within this community based on his standing as a eunuch. Um, He's also from a foreign nation. He's working um, in the courts for the Ethiopian queen, Candace. I'm not sure if that would be the right title, but the Ethiopian queen, Candace. He's working in her courts. So this outsider who by law cannot fully participate or have the rights of the Jews in Israel is so curious about God that he is willing to put up with some of those things that are unfair 
put up with some of those things that don't feel right to him and come to try to find God in worship. And to his great joy along the way home, Philip intercepts him and tells him about this scripture that he's reading that's about Jesus and tells him the whole thing. I like to imagine that Philip included the part that Paul says later in Galatians about how there was no Jew, no Gentile, no slave, no free, no male, no female in Christ Jesus. That we're all one in Christ Jesus. And he gets this beautiful news that not only is it still okay for him to seek after God, but there's this new way of doing it where he doesn't have to be a second-class citizen or outcasted. He's so excited, he demands immediate baptism. They find a river. Philip baptizes him, and he becomes part of this new family and this new way of things. Sometimes life with God is a joyous story where you find out what the real freedom in Christ looks like, of what life with Christ should be like, like the Ethiopian eunuch finds out. Um, I'd be willing to bet that for some of us, none of those stories, uh, like maybe parts of those stories hit home, but maybe we don't identify with them. When I was thinking through this, I was trying to think of, like, where do I find my story falling outside of what I typically think of in the Bible? And this will sound depressing, but I promise it's not. The first thing I thought of was the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you know the book of Ecclesiastes, basically it's chapter after, after chapter of, this is meaningless, life is in vain, it has no points. Um, and I think in true honesty that in our modern American society, this is a pretty relatable thing sometimes. The author of Ecclesiastes had everything he could want. He had access to everything. He, he had tried and, and had wealth and had all kinds of things, but he found all of it meaningless in the end. So this, this writer talked about work, that we work, but in the end... There's no meaning to it. He talked about how the rich sometimes seem to prosper while the poor are made even poorer. He talked about how the righteous sometimes seem to get everything they want, or sorry, don't get anything that they want, and the unrighteous are given every gift. He talked about how life doesn't seem fair, that wisdom is great to have, but it might not gain you anything. All of these things sometimes seemed meaningless. He came to the ultimate conclusion. The best you can do in life is to love your spouse, love the people around you, work hard and love your job, eat good food, drink good drink, and enjoy life. That's a pretty good message. And I think that part of the reason that 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 story is in the Bible or that book is in the Bible is to tell us that if this is how your life feels, is like this endless thing after thing, it just keeps coming and you're not really always sure what the meaning is, that sometimes that is a story of what it's like to live with God. This doesn't put you outside of the story of God either. When we see these stories, I'm hoping we see that the story of what it's like to live with God is not simply the Apostle Paul, though his story is amazing, or whatever other person you would picture as being the model of what Christianity would look like. I think that stories are powerful, and that when Jesus came, he shows us this because, like the verse that Penny read, he came telling stories. Um, Frederick Beekner, who, quick pause, if you don't know who Frederick Beekner is, this is a quick advertisement for a fantastic Christian author who is both an author of fiction and nonfiction and a Presbyterian minister. And this book, which is a collection of his sermons, has been um, water in the desert for me multiple times in life. Anyway, advertisement over. Frederick Beekner says about stories. Um, oh, in this sermon that I'm quoting from, 
he is talking about Jesus in front of Pilate when Pilate is asking him like who he is and Jesus doesn't say anything back. And he says this, truths about this or that are a dime a dozen, including religious truths. The truth is what Pilate is after. The truth about who we are and who God is if there is a God. The truth about life. The truth about death. The truth about truth itself. That is the truth we are all of us after. It is a truth that can never be put into words because no words can contain it. It is a truth that can never be caught in any doctrine or creed, including our own, because it will never stay still long enough, but is always moving and shifting like air. It is a truth that is always beckoning us in different ways and coming at us from different directions. And I think that is precisely why whenever Jesus tries to put that ultimate and inexpressible truth into words, instead of into silence as he did with Pilate, the form of words he uses is a form that itself move, moves and shifts and beckons us in different ways and comes at us from different directions. That is to say, he tells stories. I like the part where he says that it's a truth that can't be caught by any doctrine or creed because it never stays still long enough. It's always moving and shifting. In the verse that Penny read, it talks, the disciples asked Jesus why he uses parables. And then he says this kind of confusing thing about seeing, they didn't see, hearing, they didn't hear, um, lest they would turn and repent and I would forgive them. And most of the time, I feel like I've heard that verse interpreted as Jesus told parables to like split out the people who really believed from the people who weren't given the ability to, to believe. When I read those words, again, not a theologian, whatever. When I read those words, what I see is somebody saying, I tried to tell them in the plain and simple way. This is after like Sermon on the Mount and all those straightforward teachings. And they didn't see. I tried to show them, but they didn't get it. So now I'm going to use stories because sometimes stories capture a truth that moves and shifts and understands something in a way that plain, simple telling doesn't. So Jesus comes telling stories so that we might understand the capital T truth of life. Authors sometimes, a good author, will say something obnoxious and pretentious like um, they don't choose what their characters do like the characters choose for them, which is true, but is still obnoxious all at the same time. Um, And I would like to propose that this is kind of what we get with our lives. We don't really get to choose our climaxes and our resolutions. We get to make small individual choices. And like a good author, we get to illuminate that story as it goes. So a good author is adding details and they're adding, um, they're adding to the setting. They're making sure that uh, it's well written so that people can grab the full truth of it. I think this is kind of our challenge in our lives as well. We might not to get, get to choose exactly what kind of story we're writing. We get to choose how well to write it, how to lean into it, how to write the details of it as well as we possibly can. I'm going to steal some of what I'm saying at the end here also from Beekner, but I'm not quoting it, so this is like loose paraphrase. He says says that our stories kind of meet together like searchlights in the dark. Like each of our stories is a light sent out into the dark and they overlap and they create more truth as we go. And that all of our stories wrap up into one story, which if you want to be super simple, is the story of Jesus told over and over again in a million different ways. Some of us 
when we hear or think of Christianity as a single story or this way of following Jesus as a single story, we might reject the faith or sometimes, I'm proposing for a lot of us, we might be more tempted to reject ourselves or our story as being worthy. My challenge to you this morning is to, to beat this metaphor to death, to pick up the pen and continue writing your story, to write it well, to write it with the most truth that you can. So I want to leave you with just a couple of questions to think about. First one is, what is the story that you are writing? And that one could take a while to figure out. You might not know exactly. Or you might know right away what kind of story you're writing. But what's the story like that you're writing? Second one, what does it mean to write it well? Does it mean something like getting closer to discomfort the way Rizpa did? Does it mean something like accepting that you're going to do the monotonous things of life, but you are going to do them the absolute best that you can? Does it mean something else for you? What does it mean to write it well? And my last one is, and we haven't talked about this much throughout it, but this goes back kind of to um, the TED Talk, is what stories of other people do you sometimes have a, a difficult time accepting or recognizing as valid stories? What other stories out there, when you hear of other people and their story and what life with God is like for them, which ones do you have a hard time accepting? Those are my three questions I'd like to leave you with. And we're going to transition into communion. So, transition, communion. Um, <laughs> we, are, we are all part of one single story. We share one single communion table and all are welcome, whatever the story is that you are writing. On the table, there's all kinds of options with wonderful, helpful labels. There's gluten-free bread, there's wine, there's juice, there's regular bread. Um, and there's the self-contained packets as well. So in a second, we're going to come forward and um, have communion. I would like to pray for us first. And sorry, I, I feel like I'm stumbling over the transitions. Ready? We're going to pray. Here we go. Okay. Um, God, we thank you so much that you are with us, the author of so many different types of stories, um, that our stories are welcome in your kingdom, uh, that you love us no matter what our story looks like. And God, we pray over this time of communion together that we would be um, participating in unity, all part of the same story, the same body of Christ Jesus. In your name, amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com. 